6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 2 through 5. And I will give you shepherds according to mine heart, who shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. The word shepherds there, by the way, is a term meaning leaders, not just shepherds like shepherds and flocks. That's the term, but it connotatively, that was the term they used for leadership. And it shall come to pass when ye are multiplied and increased in the land. In those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they miss it, neither shall that be done anymore. Whew. You might mark down verse 16 of chapter 3. Remember John 3.16? Jeremiah 3.16. Interesting thing, when you really want to get into some, some discussions about um, Wendell Jones and the search for the ark, one of the problems, and we can talk a little bit about this, I guess, because it's probably time to insert a few comments here, um, is that according to Jeremiah, there will be no ark. The ark of covenant is gone. And there's all these people looking for the ark. And they base their search on a passage in 2 Maccabees. There are some books between the, test the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're apocryphal books. That is, they're not part of the Hebrew canon. And most of them really are not worth it's a lot other than just cultural background, maybe. Except the first and second book of Maccabees, which is still not part of the Hebrew canon, but does include a lot of history that many scholars feel is very valuable. And in the... Uh, in 2 Maccabees, chapter 2, verse 48, it makes reference to a, it's a story that, that other scholars put no credence on, is that the Ark of the Covenant was hidden, I think, I think by Jeremiah, in some cave. And people are tearing up half of Jordan looking for this cave. And, uh, and don't misunderstand, there's different, there's different schools of thought, but there's one school of thought, and it's a very comfortable school of thought from a scriptural point of view, it leads on this verse, it says it ain't going to show up anymore. Now, um, this is sort of a preview. What's coming here is a preview of chapter 31. When we get to chapter 31 of Jeremiah, we're going to make a lot of discoveries. The New Testament is going to just surface there. And it's, it's a, it, this, is a, this here is a demonstration. But verse 16 already, we have a declaration which proves, or should have proved to their people, that the old economy is going to be dissolved. The whole concept of Judaism from the Torah, the Ten Commandments, the whole Levitical system, it's going to be dissolved. Because that whole thing was built on the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and how God dwelt between the cherubims, and that's where the high priest spread the blood on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur. Once, only once a year could he go into the Holy of Holies. No one else could ever go in there, only the high priest, only that one day and only with a great ceremony, that whole routine. The whole thing makes up the Torah. It's going to be dissolved. This is, this is the hint of us. We're going to hear more about it later in, in Jeremiah. 
That's why I say Jeremiah is the book that gives the New Testament its name. comes out of chapter 31. We say here, it shall come to pass when you're multiplied and increased in the land in those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord, neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they miss it, neither shall that be done anymore. What he's saying, though, very simply, is that the religious system at that day will not need visual aids. It won't need something like the ark to be indicative as a model or a, a concept or a symbol or something. Why? Because the Lord's going to dwell among them. He's speaking of the millennium. And um, so uh, it's interesting, by the way, talking about the ark. Remember when we studied Ezekiel? You remember Ezekiel's temple? All that detail of the temple, six inches here and seven inches that. I mean, the whole architectural description that's in Ezekiel of the so-called millennial temple. All that detail. A very strange description because there's no Ark of the Covenant mentioned. Okay, that bothers a lot of scholars. Now, the first time the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned is in Exodus uh, 25. For those of you going to do a side study of the Ark, First time it mentions Exodus 25, it shows up in Solomon's temple. It is in Solomon's temple, 1 Kings 8, verse 6. It was obviously in the tabernacle, two tables of stone. And oh, by the way, someone called my attention. The last time I really blew it. I got into all these obscure linguist things. Uh, you remember about the almond that budded? And of course, Aaron's rod budded. It was an almond bud. And one thing that I had not uh, caught, and, and Bill uh, uh, was paying attention, he said, by the way, did you ever notice? And I says, no, I didn't. Wow, that's neat. By the way, neither did Feinberg. So did, neither did all the commentaries. Are. Which is a lesson to that, by the way. You can have an elaborate library, you can read all the great scholars, and you do a lot of homework. Don't assume that the Holy Spirit won't give you personally an insight that has escaped notice in centuries of scholarship. And and I, I could I the Lord has blessed me with a couple of things that I cannot find in the scripture anyway. I'm sure it's right. That's a whole other issue. We'll get to that tonight. But the point is what the, the lesson is, the lesson is. I also got a lot of insights that I'm sure are wrong too, so don't misunderstand me. But the lesson is the excitement of studying the scripture is the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural experience. So the Holy Spirit can very easily, frequently does, surface an insight. And I'll give you an example. I, my, my homework for Jeremiah is not trivial. I have quite a few books that I'm going through to try to get some background. I'm doing half the reason, half the value of doing these kinds of things is that I try to stay ahead of you a little bit, and it causes me to do my homework, and it's the kind of pressure that gets me where I belong, into the Word more. But I do lean on a lot of books, and yet at the same time, it's interesting that despite all of that, there are insights that I think are very meaningful. I really do believe you can fruitfully link up that reference in chapter 1, end of chapter 1, with the errands rather than budded. And you can run with that yourself. And I think that's exciting. Our things are, it's exciting, it's also interesting, it's, 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 it's um, important to recognize that those insights are not necessarily, even you get some very diligent scholars, they miss those things. Because the Holy Spirit is really, really the teacher. When you do get those insights, check them with the Scripture, because it may not have meaning, it may not have value. And so you, you, you compare Scripture with Scripture. Acts 17, 11, right? Okay. All right. So, um, 
Now, uh, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant, of course, prominent fixture in the tabernacle. And then when Solomon creates the, you know, builds the, the, the temple, Solomon's temple, the Ark is in Solomon's temple. We know that from 1 Kings 8, 1 Kings 8, verse 6. So the Ark is there in its glory. Now, it, the last time it's mentioned in the Scripture is 2 Chronicles 35, verse 3. Now, most scholars believe that when the Babylonians conquer Jerusalem and, and, and the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar, that the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was stolen along with all the other temple vessels that are mentioned. The problem with that is in chapter 52, verses, uh, I think it's 17 on, it, um, or it lists the things that you know, Nebuchadnezzar took, you know, from the temple, it's a little surprising because the ark is not mentioned. And it bothers a lot of people because it was gold, solid gold, you'd think it'd be mentioned. It's so prominent in their, in their horizon that you'd think it'd be mentioned. So from this, a lot of scholars feel that the, thing, the ark, they somehow had a secret passage in a, in, and they'd provided some way that the ark was hidden. And that gives rise to these ideas that after that, some later period, that it was hidden away in some cave somewhere. There are some other things, and we think we know where they are. That's another whole story. The ashes, the red heifer, and all that. We think we know where those things are, and they are hidden, and they will be required to dedicate the, the forthcoming third temple. But will the ark show up or not? Don't know. There, are, there is a, a field of thought that says it won't because of Jeremiah 3.16. And there's others that have a way of trying to deal with that and um, that think it will be found. The only place it shows up subsequent to this passage is in Revelation, but there it shows up in heaven. That passage isn't really that useful in trying to unravel the mystery of the Ark of the Covenant. So uh, um, I think I've told you more than I know about uh, uh, Jeremiah 3.16. Let's move on. Verse 17. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. Oh, now here's the other point, you see. the throne, God's throne was to be between the cherubim. The mercy seat. You know, the, we have the Ark of the Covenant, which is sort of like a coffin thing. It's made out of wood covered with gold, inside of which are the Ten Commandments and the pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded and so on. But the lid, what you and I would call a lid of this thing that has the two angel, two cherubim on it, isn't called a lid in the Scriptures. It's called the mercy seat. It's a strange name for it, but the point is, the concept is, is that's where the God sits and he look and, and 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 as he looks down on the broken law, he is um, assuaged from his anger by the blood, the shed blood, the blood that's poured on the mercy seat at the on Yom Kippur. That's the etymology that's used in the in, in the Le Levitical symbolism there. But God is said to dwell between the cherubim, and in fact, um, uh, literally did. There was the Shekinah glory was was above the ark in in the holy of holies. And, um, and and Ezekiel describes when it leaves, when, when God finally does leave Solomon's temple. Ezekiel describes it, how it actually the Shekinah left and hovers over one corner and then goes, almost leaving reluctantly. But the point is, so the Ark of the Covenant was viewed, that's what Jeremiah's point is here, that the Ark of the Covenant was going to be no more even remembered. Why? Because Jerusalem will be called the throne of the Lord, verse 17. And all the nations shall be gathered unto it. All the nations, not just Israel, all the nations shall be gathered unto it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil art. 
In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel. Oh, really? We see uh, evidences of this elsewhere in Ezekiel 37, the two houses united. And they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given for an inheritance. Go on to your fathers. In those days shall the house of Judah walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north. And some, some people see in this even you know, the, the emigration of the Jews from Soviet Russia. To the land which I have given for an inheritance unto your fathers. The land that's there now. The land where Chuck and the gang are there tonight. Verse 19. But I said, how shall I put thee among the children and give thee a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage of the host of the nations? And I said, thou shalt call me my father, and thou shalt not turn away from me. Surely as a wife treacherously departeth from her husband, so have ye dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. A voice was heard upon the high places, weeping, and supplications of the children of Israel. For they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Behold, we come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is sal the salvation of Israel. For shame, despite all the insults and despite their backsliding, you understand he's opening the door, hey, come back. He's still offering them salvation, see? For shame hath devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks, their herds, their sons, and their daughters. We lie, we lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. If thou wilt return, O Israel... Chapter 4, uh, If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me, and if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then shalt thou not be removed. In other words, they're not going to be taken off into captivity if they'll repent. Now, they don't repent, so they are put into captivity. We understand the proposition he's putting forth. He says, And thou shalt swear, the Lord liveth in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, and the nations shall bless themselves in him, and him shall they see the glory. Interesting comment. Um, uh, when you swear by God, it involves recognizing him. It's an act of recognition. To thou shalt swear the Lord liveth in truth and justice and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him and him and see. That. Whenever I think of this, I'm often, I continue to be fascinated because as I go through, I've, I've lived in a lot of rough places. I've been on the, uh, for a while on the forecastle of a ship. Uh, we've all been in locker rooms. Uh, we've been in, uh, you've probably had occasions to be in the fields and rough workers and street language and what have you. And you've probably heard it all, guys. I know you girls being ladies have not heard some of these foul things, but you guys <clears throat> um, know what I'm talking about. In all the profanity and in all the abuse I've heard, you know, I've never heard anyone swear by Confucius <laughs> or Krishna or... Um, Whoever, it's interesting. They insist upon calling on the highest authority around, the Lord Jesus Christ, all the time. It's funny you never hear idols used profanely. I think that's interesting. 
I think that in that peculiarity is an acknowledgement. I think that's very interesting. I don't know what you do with that piece of information, but we'll move on. <laughs> Verse 3, Thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Here in verses 3 and 4, Jeremiah is going to use two rhetorical analogies. One out of agriculture and one out of physiology. First is, he says, he's not speaking about real ground here. He's talking about the untilled heart. Okay? Let's say the Lord God to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Is he talking about their fields? No, he's talking about their heart. Okay? No farmer sows on unplowed ground. Their hearts are hardened. And they need to be plowed. Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Then he, then he shifts the idiom. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. So it's obviously not a literal physiology. He's using it as a rhetorical device. Circumcision is of the heart. Where do we learn that? Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. Romans chapter 2. That sounds familiar. Remember when we were in Romans chapter 2, verse 20, 29. Paul says, circumcision is of the heart. He's quoting from the Torah, from Deuteronomy 10. Philippians chapter 3, same idea. Circumcision is of the heart. The inward reality should replace the outward sign. Circumcision was introduced as a sign to Abraham and used, of course. But what he's saying here, true circumcision is not an outward sign, it's an inward reality. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Declare in Judah and publish in Jerusalem, say, blow the trumpet in the land. Cry, gather together and assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. Different trumpet. This isn't the temple trumpet. This is the, the trumpet that might be analogous to the trumpets that are in Revelation chapters 7 on, 7, 8, 9. I it's chapters 8, 9. Uh, Blow the trumpet and assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. He's suggesting that the rural people take advantage. You know, he's, he says, blow the trumpet. He's... It's sort of futility here, really. We're saying, blow the trumpet. Those of you that are in outlying areas will go into the cities to protect yourself because of the coming. He's going to start describing the coming invasion. It's not going to do any good. But that's you know, it'll hold out for a while. So you, you, in those days, you retreat to the fortified cities on time of stress. It's kind of using today. You know, if you're kind of a survival type, the game is to get out of town, right out into the rural areas. It's a little different technology involved. Um, whereas they set up. The standard toward Zion, retire, stay not, for I will uh, retire. This is a retreat. So he go back, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. A great destruction. Now, 
You will find commentators that say these invaders from the north were the Scythians. And there are good scholars that make that reference. Let me tell you, it's wrong. I've dug into this to some, in some depth. It's clear that the invaders that Jeremiah is talking about are the Babylonians. And it may seem strange to you to think of Babylon coming to Israel from the north, but that's because they got, it's the Fertile Crescent issue. They've got to go around the Arabian Desert. So they, in moving from Babylon, they go up and then come down from the north. Even though they're east of it, they have to make that swing. So the enemies of Israel typically come in from the north. Here's the fact that's interesting. The Scythians have never invaded Judah. Israel maybe, but not Judah. And that's a very important fact to know. First of all, it'll keep you from getting tangled up in Jeremiah. You'll recognize right up front and all the way through that we're going to be looking at Babylonians, and the Babylonians are, and there's lots of evidence of this, by the way, we'll come to, because uh, and I'll try to uh, unravel that as we go. But clearly, from textual issues, we know that Jeremiah had in mind the Babylonians, not the Scythians. A. B. The Scythians never did invade Judah, so if Jeremiah did say that, he was wrong. But the reason it's important is because of Ezekiel 38. Because there we, uh, the Scythians are in view, and they come from the uttermost parts of the north. They don't just come from the north. They come from the uttermost parts of the north. And in fact, that invasion has not yet happened and is about to. It's about to in our lifetime. Maybe relatively soon, the way things are going. Pray that it doesn't. Yet. And don't be in a hurry for the rapture. If the rapture came a few years ago, you and I might not have been saved. So praise God that he tallies, uh, that he tarries, <laughs> and tallies. <laughs> but um, uh, so anyway, here we have the Babylonians in view. I will bring evil from the north, a great destruction. Now this destruction is going to be the Babylonians under the leadership of a general by the name of Nebuchadnezzar who becomes the king of Babylon. And you're going to find out he is the Lord's anointed, strange phrase. He is used by God to be his instrument of judgment. And Jeremiah understands that, but it makes it a very unpop unpopular theme because the, his Judah is very pro-Egypt, Babylon's rival. And they keep getting in these political alliances, and Jeremiah says, don't do it. The Babylonians are going to win, and furthermore, it's of God. And, uh, and uh, Judah doesn't listen, and they keep getting in these intrigues, and they get smashed. And, of course, Jeremiah's theme song is, uh, even though Zedekiah subsequently is a friendly king, his, his second lieutenants are, are uh, the old guard and very pro-Egypt, and Zedekiah is, uh, is very useless in trying to protect Jeremiah from the abuse of his enemies. But that's we're getting ahead of ourselves. Now, it's interesting that in verse 7 we have the symbol used called the lion, and that symbol happens. It doesn't necessarily prove anything, but the symbol happens to be uh, the same symbol that Daniel sees in Daniel 7 of Babylon, being the lion. The lion has come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of the nations is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate, and thy cities shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. Popular theme. Can you imagine Jeremiah telling Judah this? Didn't get all, it didn't go over very well. Verse 8, For this, gird yourselves with a sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord is not turned back from us. And it shall come to pass at that day, saith the Lord, that the heart of the king shall perish, and the heart of the princes and the priests shall be astounded, and the prophets shall wonder. Like the word is to be there also to be astounded, to be just flabbergasted. He's speaking here of the prophets. I suspect he's primarily, he's including himself because he himself will express amazement as what the Lord shows him. There's some things here you'll see in his own language. He's flabbergasted what the Lord's going to show him. 
But he's also speaking of the false prophets, these prophets that say, hey, everything's going to be all right. Now, verse 10 is one of the most problem verses in the scriptures and real translational problems with it. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. Let me just hi highlight the fact that verse 10 is one of the most problematical verses in, among the scholars in, in the book of Jeremiah. Verse 10, then said, then said I, Ah, Lord God, surely thou hast greatly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, Ye shall have peace, whereas the sword reacheth unto thy soul. Well, we know that God never deceives his people, so this whole thing is, got a, is a combination of things. A, what the translation really says, and there's some arguments about that. And secondly, even given that, what does it really mean? And there's about three different schools of thought, and I won't bore you with any of these because none of them are really resolved too well. Um, uh, first of all, it, uh, um, it says, Surely deceive thy people, saying, Ye shall have peace. Jeremiah never prophesied peace, so it doesn't mean what it says literally in any case. Part of its translation, part of it might be under trying to get an inference as to what the, to infer the tone that is presented at here. Um, it turns out in the Septuagint version, where they translated this into Greek some three centuries before Christ, uh, there they translated this slightly different, implying that these were, in the, in the tone of the verbs and such, that there was words of the false prophets. Um, other scholars more commonly feel that there's a permissive first cause concept here, that, that God permitted others to deceive them, in effect. And that's what Jeremiah has an eye toward. There isn't, in the language, there isn't a first cause, second cause kind of kind of structure. So there's some of those issues. I'm not going to belabor this. It's not that important, but I just want you to be aware of there is a, there is a, if that, if you stumble over this, it, it is, it is tricky. And, uh, because God did not deceive them. He plainly warned Israel, and that's exactly what is all going on here. So, so this is some kind of an expression, partly maybe in the translation, partly in us understanding the tone of Jeremiah here, and that, uh, that, um, then said, I, then said I, it doesn't mean he's right, uh, Ah, Lord, surely thou hast greatly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, Ye shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches into the soul. It's, a, it's an expression of, uh, of, of nothing else confusion. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.